Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Tara Watson, author of The Economics of Immigration in an Age of Fear, The Border Within. She is the professor of economics at William College and fellow at the Brookings Institute. How are you doing today, Professor? Great. Thank you. Can you start by telling us something about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Sure. I have been studying the U.S. safety net for a long time, and I actually became interested in this by learning that immigrant participation in the safety net fell a lot during welfare reform in 1996. So I was interested in that question. People had attributed it to so-called chilling effects, which is the idea that the language in the law made immigrants reluctant to sign up for social programs. It turns out, though, that uh, enforcement increased a lot around that same time that welfare reform was passed in 1996. So I started looking at the impacts of enforcement and learned that a lot of the decline in participation among children of immigrants, especially in the Medicaid program, for example, which is public health insurance, uh, was due to enforcement rather than to anything in the safety net bill per, per se. And that led me to study the effects of enforcement more broadly. So after I had written a couple of papers about that, I teamed up with a journalist, Kelly Thompson, to write this book about the impacts of enforcement. Tell us about the foreign-born population and their status. Sure. It's about 40 to 45 million people living in the U.S. were born outside the U.S. And about um, half of those are not citizens, and about half of those, or between 10 and 11 million people, are undocumented, meaning they are not legally allowed to be in the U.S. Now, you talked about in your book um, ways that undocumented immigrants have been reduced in the United States. How does society reduce the numbers? We see um, the undocumented population peaked around 2007, uh, the peak of the economic cycle that happened in the early 2000s. And then during the Great Recession, there was a decline and the numbers just haven't come back. There have been um, perhaps further declines during the COVID crisis, although we don't have reliable information on that. So there are two ways to think about reducing the numbers of undocumented migrants. One is to increase enforcement efforts either at the border or in the interior, which is the the focus of our book. But also um, a lot of the inflows into the U.S. are determined by economic conditions. So when there are a lot of jobs, more immigrants and undocumented immigrants tend to come. Now, how much do people pay guides to cross the border? You talked about that also. 
Yeah, it's uh, quite expensive and becoming more expensive over time as border crossing has become more dangerous. So often people will pay several thousand dollars to come to the U.S. with the help of a guide who uh, assists them in getting through the, the crossing and sometimes assists in getting them to their final destination within the U.S. It used to be common for people to come without a guide, to just uh, come on foot by themselves, but that is increasingly uncommon because it has become physically demanding to come across the border crossings that are open um, and more dangerous. So people need more help than they used to. Now, your focus of your book was on the interior enforcement of families. Why did you focus on the interior enforcement? Yeah, so there's there's border enforcement and interior enforcement. The border Control, we felt, got a lot more coverage in the media and in academic literature. And so we wanted to focus on what we thought was an understudied part of the picture, which is focusing on enforcement that happens on the street when people are living in the U.S. We also think this type of enforcement has particular humanitarian impacts because it often affects families that have been living in the U.S. for a long time. So the children of those families are often U.S. citizens who are going to grow up and be part of American society. And really thinking about the consequences is, is very important for that group. Now, how are you defining illegal immigration? Is this a new term? Well, at the beginning of the founding of the country, there wasn't really an illegal immigration concept. Uh, there were some restrictions on immigration put in the late 1800s. So about 100 years, we had no restrictions, and there were some minimal restrictions uh, specifically targeted at Asian um, populations. And it wasn't until the 1920s that immigration was really seriously curtailed um, for a broad swath of uh, would-be immigrants. The, The term that people can use, sometimes people refer to illegal immigrants Uh, We prefer the term undocumented immigrants or unauthorized immigrants. And one thing to keep in mind is that people who are living in the country without legal status sometimes immigrated legally, meaning they came with a visa and stayed past the the date uh, they were supposed to leave on that visa. Other times they may have crossed without authorization across the border. So uh, we tend to use undocumented or unauthorized throughout our book. Now, tell us about the civil rights era and how immigration changed drastically. Sure. There was, as I mentioned, there was a clamp down on legal immigration in the 1920s, and that greatly reduced the number of immigrants that came to the U.S., and it also restricted those immigrants to mainly be from Northern and Western Europe. And by the 60s, as the civil rights era was underway, it was increasingly obvious that that was a a racist policy and efforts were made to change that. So specifically uh, the quotas that had been in place for specific countries were changed so that immigrants from any country um, were eligible to apply for um, entry into the U.S. There are numeric limits that are quite strict and no more than 7% of the slots can go to immigrants from any one country to ensure a diversity of countries that people are arriving from. But we have a much more racially and ethnically diverse group of immigrants than we did in the past. 
So whereas in the early 1900s, it used to be largely European immigrants, European immigrants are now a minority and many more immigrants come from Latin America, Asia, and Africa. California, New York, those were historically areas where large immigrant populations migrated. What about today? Where are the immigrants migrating to? Yeah, things have really changed on that front. So California and Texas still have very large, oh, sorry, New York, you mentioned New York, also Texas, uh, Illinois, New, New Jersey, or other, and Florida are other states that are traditional immigrant destinations. Um, those states still have large numbers of immigrants, but increasingly we see immigrants um, changing where they live to be places that were not traditional destinations. So places like the South um, and you know, small towns in the Mountain West, uh, all kinds of places throughout the U.S. So it's a much more dispersed population than it used to be. And that's largely driven by the economics. So where immigrants see that there are job opportunities, they will tend to go. And they, they're actually more likely to respond to those labor market job opportunities than the U.S. born population. Now, tell us about the mixed immigrant families. Uh, family members that have different statuses and how they negotiate today? Sure. There are quite a large number of those families. So about 7% of children in the U.S. have at least one unauthorized parent, meaning they have a parent living without status in the U.S. And most of those kids are themselves citizens. So this comes about most often because when people are born in the U.S., they uh, have birthright citizenship And so even if um, their parents are undocumented, they have all the protections and rights of a U.S. citizen. So what we see is a a really complicated picture. Those kids are um, entitled to, for example, safety net programs, um, but their undocumented parent has to be the one to go to sign them up for those. And so it can be um, challenging to encourage undocumented immigrants to to take that step and to enroll their kids in the the various services that they're eligible for. Uh, It's also just uh, a hard life to navigate in general. The undocumented parents are constantly making decisions about um, whether a given risk is worth it. So we see parents will take their kids to school, but sometimes when there's an enforcement event, they will choose not to take their kids to school. Um, They may take their kids for healthcare, but if the kid's not sick, they may not take their kid for uh, preventative or routine care. So it's a, a complicated situation, but we have many millions of children growing up in that situation. And so thinking about how to best serve them is part of what we hope this book will inspire. Temporary visas and staying in the United States. You talked about that in your book. How is that uh, negotiated? Yeah, so millions of people come to the U.S. every year on a visa, Uh, tourists, business people, students uh, from abroad, and the vast majority of them leave according to the terms of the visa. But somewhere around 1% per year don't do that, Um, or at least the U.S. government doesn't have a record of them leaving. We also don't have great record keeping, so it's possible that some of them left without us realizing it. Um, But the the, those 1%, because it's um, 1% of such a large number, uh, do contribute to the unauthorized population. So once someone's visa has expired, they are living without status in the U.S., 
And some people do use this as a way to migrate permanently to the U.S. without status. Other people maybe stay for a couple of years beyond the terms of their visa and then leave. What about incomes? You know, we're looking now at inflation. What about the incomes of the residents who are not documented? Uh, undocumented people tend to be more likely to be under the poverty line and and uh, low income compared to the general population. Um, people without status sometimes do work regular minimum wage jobs uh, with a either a fake social security number or using someone else's social security number, but they often also do under the table work, uh, which tends to not pay as well. Um, but there are certainly exceptions. There are some undocumented people who earn quite good livings in the U.S. So there's a range. Um, and we also look at the literature on the impact of undocumented immigration and immigration in general on the wages of the U.S. born. And that literature overwhelmingly suggests there are not big adverse impacts on the U.S. born in terms of wages. Now, what types of jobs are we more likely to see the unauthorized worker in? Uh, most unauthorized workers, though not all, have fairly low levels of education, um, often not a high school degree. And so the jobs that are most common are those that don't require high level of education and then also may not require much English, depending on the English proficiency of the, the immigrant. So jobs like construction, janitorial work, landscaping, uh, retail and, and service type jobs are very common. And um, another important one is agricultural work. So uh, about half of um, the agricultural production workforce in the US is thought to be undocumented. And that, that industry in particular really wouldn't be able to survive in its current form without the undocumented workforce. We always hear about the cost. Tell us about the cost of informal immigration enforcement, the border control. Yeah, so the U.S. does spend a healthy chunk of money on both border control and interior enforcement. It adds up to more than they spend on other federal, all other federal enforcement. So FBI, Coast Guard, DEA, all of the programs that you hear about for unrelated to immigration are dwarfed by the spending on immigration enforcement at the federal level. Of course, states and local governments do a lot of uh, police work that um, does not have an equivalent because the federal government is solely responsible for immigration enforcement. But um, the, those costs are quite high. And then in the book, we also emphasize the humanitarian costs, which are, of course, hard to put a number on. Um, but the disruption to families, the fear that creates incentives for immigrants to not invest in their children and um, not be able to access, you know, the best job opportunity for their skill set. Um, those are costs as well. Now, what impact does uh, immigrants have on the job market? We're always hearing about the competition. Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated. I mentioned earlier that in general, we don't see big adverse wage impacts. There have been a, a lot of studies about this, a large economic literature. The one exception where some studies find 
impacts is um, for very um, for U.S. born people with very low levels of education and actually previous waves of immigrants are the ones that face most direct competition with the immigrant inflows and are therefore perhaps have some lower wages than they would otherwise have. In general, most workers actually benefit from the presence of undocumented immigrants, if anything, because uh, the that workforce allows for more spe- specialization. It allows U.S.-born workers to be more productive. So you see, for example, when enforcement goes up in a local area, the um, sort of middle range workers in the U.S. workforce um, do worse. And that's because uh, the, the support work that they were relying on is is gone. Tell us the story about Annabella Barrows. You gave many good stories in the book. Thanks. Yeah. So Annabelle is one of the uh, six people that we profiled in the book or six families that we profiled in the book. She grew up um, in Texas and actually was in Texas pretty much her whole childhood. Um, But her mom was under the impression that it was safer to have her kids in Mexico. So every time she was about to give birth, she would walk across the border have the baby in Mexico and then walk back across with the the siblings. And that meant, of course, that Annabelle was an undocumented resident of the U.S. She went on to grow up, um, live as an undocumented person, had kids of her own. Um, She got pulled over for speeding one day. And this is a common way that uh, the families that we profile interact with the enforcement system. So um, traffic stops are a very common way that people get caught up in the in the enforcement system. She, of course, did not have a driver's license. She was living in Ohio at the time, and Ohio um, did not uh, offer um, undocumented immigrants driver's license, although some states do. And she was detained by ICE. She ended up going to court and was given um, some relief and. It's, it's a form of relief where it's um, temporary and unpredictable, but essentially the, the government says you can, you can stay here until we have a chance to really um, evaluate your claim. And the backlogs are so long that people like Annabelle, who had no criminal history and um, were not viewed as a threat in any way, uh, kind of are put at the back of the queue. So it could be years before someone's case is heard. In the meantime, she wore an ankle monitor, um, but she did get a work permit or the equivalent of a social security number. And so she was able to get a good job. And in some ways, it was actually a blessing to her family. Um, she was able to go out more. Um, she went for regular check-ins with ICE, which is Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And um Each time she went, they would just say, come back in six months or come back in a year. So she was doing that for a while. Um, In in the meantime, her ex-husband came and and threatened her with a gun. He was severely depressed. And in that circumstance, when someone is the victim of abuse, um, there's a special visa that allows for a potential pathway to legal status. It's called a U visa. So she eventually qualified for that U visa based on her ability to testify against um, an abuser. And 
at the time of the, the book ending, she was she had been approved for the U visa. She didn't actually have it in hand yet. Um, I don't know actually at this moment whether she has it uh, in hand yet or not, um, but she is slated to get one and that will enable her to live in the U.S. indefinitely and potentially get become a citizen. Now, you, you talked about the border control a lot in the book. Give us a brief history. The border control, um, the, the key things that, that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the border has become a lot tighter in the past 20 years or so. So at the beginning of the uh, immigration control, such as it was, as I mentioned, that was in the late 1800s, um, there wasn't even really a well-defined border and the U.S. was still expanding, of course. So um, it it was many years where there was a lot of circular migration. People would come for a few years or even a few seasons and work in the U.S. and then go back to Latin America. And uh, it was considered very porous. There was an increase in the 90s in um, the border control, but it didn't really ramp up until the 2000s. And since then, uh, we've put tremendous amount of resources into securing the border. The wall that was in the news um, during the Trump era was actually, um, you know, kind of misleading in the sense that there's already a wall across many miles of the border. There's also natural barriers like rivers and deserts um, across many other miles. Uh, We also have drones. We have um, people with guns patrolling the border. It's actually quite difficult to come across the border surreptitiously nowadays. And um, as a result, many people stay in the U.S. for a longer period of time because they know if they leave, it may be difficult to come back. So whereas um, 15 or 20 years ago, most people would have, most undocumented residents would have been in the U.S. less than 10 years. Now about two thirds have been in the U.S. 10 years or more. So people are making the U.S. their permanent home in a way that wasn't true in the past. Families are getting caught up with the enforcement system. You had a really interesting story about Fatima. Can you share that with us? Sure. Uh, Fatima came as a young adult. She was actually around 19. Um, from Guatemala. She uh, came because she needed to support her young son. Um, She was a single mom. She left her son with her parents in Guatemala, came to the U.S. and stayed with a cousin in Springfield. Um, She eventually met another man from Guatemala who's also undocumented. They had children and settled in Springfield. And they work... um, or worked, I should say, uh, a series of jobs during the year, seasonal work. Uh, but in this particular instance, they were working at a potato farm where, where they had li- worked for many years. Um, and one night they were driving back from the farm with a bunch of uh, workers and her husband, who we call Luis in the book, got pulled over and detained and uh, immediately taken away. They had to call um, someone else to drive them home because none of them had driver's licenses. And um, Luis had an outstanding order of deportation already, and he was immediately deported. So if people are um, in, in the system and they, for example, don't show up for one of those appointments that I mentioned earlier, they can be deported without much of a, a court 
um, process. And so he was deported almost immediately back to Guatemala. So Fatima then was living with her two kids, her two American-born kids, in um, Springfield without Luis and without um, the income that he provided that they relied on. And um, when I talked to her, she was really struggling to um, to figure out what to do next and, and how to support her family. She had the option, of course, of moving them all back to Guatemala. She's very reluctant to do that because her kids um, don't speak Spanish very well. The poverty there is very extreme, and she really didn't see any opportunity for them to earn a decent living or to have a decent education for her kids who are at that time elementary school aged. Now, you talk about in your book the personal impact on taxes, health, crime, education, and other social services. Tell us about this and how um, undocumented people impact these services. Sure. Um, It's a little bit of a mixed story. There are definitely some untrue myths floating around out there. So, for example, uh, I've spent a lot of my research looking at safety net participation among immigrants and undocumented immigrants do not use safety net services very much. They're in fact ineligible for most safety net programs. And um, what sometimes confuses people is that the citizen kids are eligible. And so they do sometimes use programs like food stamps or the Medicaid healthcare program. Uh, But even in that situation, undocumented families or families with mixed status are less likely to use those programs than similarly situated U.S.-born families. So um, the safety net use is um, not as big an issue as people think. Um, However, um, there are costs associated with healthcare and education that occur when undocumented individuals move to an area. Um, Also, the undocumented population does pay quite a bit in taxes. Uh, they pay income taxes in some cases. Uh, they also pay payroll taxes to the extent that they are working in formal sector jobs. They, of course, pay sales or property taxes. And so um, if you actually look at the numbers, the, the tax um, flows are quite positive for this population. Um, and the costs to um, to having the population in the U.S. are borne by some local governments that have a lot of undocumented immigrants. So there's a little bit of a mismatch. The taxes tend to go to the federal government uh, for the most part, and the um, costs, to, to the extent there are costs, are borne by the local governments. What is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? I would say that the current system that we have is costly on both a humanitarian and financial level. It is capricious. It doesn't seem fair to people caught up in it or to the general U.S. population. And it needs to be reformed. And I think reform is possible if Congress decides to act. Congress really hasn't done any significant work on immigration for decades. And it's a real problem. We have a a vacuum so that every time a new president comes into the U.S., the immigration policy completely changes. And that adds to the confusion and the capriciousness. It 
is a system that very few people in the U- U.S., very few voters are happy with. And I think there is scope for a bipartisan reform if Congress decides it's in their political interest to move forward. So I'd like to see that happen. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you're working on? Uh, Right now I'm working on a project looking at the public charge rule. That was a rule that um, was sort of reintroduced under the Trump administration and then um, never was fully implemented. This uh, rule indicates to people that if they choose to participate in the safety net as immigrants, they may have their future opportunities curtailed to become um, permanent residents or citizens. And so I'd like to study the effect of that on how people interact with the safety net system. Well, that's going to be a great project. Again, we've been talking with Professor Tara Watson, the author of The Economics of Immigration in an Age of Fear, The Border Within. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me.